And in addition, we will consider some of these features in groups because they share a common significance or it just makes sense to handle it that way. Also, I promise everything I'm going to talk about today is not exhaustive. There is much more beyond this. However, before we begin, we need a little review. The tabernacle or temple was not only a place of worship for the Israelites, but it was a symbolic depiction of God's relationship with the entire world. Metaphorically, the wall of the temple was the boundary between the world and those within the household of faith. Individuals left the world and entered entered into the people who served God with water and a sacrifice. That was the laver and the altar, respectively. We could further add the altar as a type of price, so again, part of leaving the world and entering into hope is sacrifice and baptism. The first room of the tabernacle was obviously the holy place. This room with its accompanying instruments represented the probationary life of those members of the everlasting covenant. The items of this room represent all that should encompass a believer's life. Those in this room were fed with spiritual food. That was the showbread. The altar of incense represented the offering of prayers. In addition, the only light in this room, for it had no windows, was the lampstand, and obviously symbolic of the knowledge of God in a dark world. This probationary space spanned the distance between entering into covenant and the future reward worked for. For our Lord and Savior was represented in the curtain that will be the way into the for those in the holy place to enter into the most holy place or the actual divine presence. Christ is there as our high priest at God's right hand. And we'll talk more about the contents of the ark later um, when we get to some of the changes. But for now we have a building or structure that is not only central to the daily lives of the Israelites but also a key source of instruction on numerous topics. We're going to cover a lot of these topics this morning. You'll see the slide over. And we're going to start with the most obvious difference of all, and that is the location. The tabernacle of the wilderness was constructed outside the land of Israel during the people's sojourn in the wilderness. Furthermore, this was a mobile structure. It was designed to be assembled and disassembled as necessary. For example, Numbers chapter 10 uh, verse 11, 12, and 17 says the following. We'll put it up in case you're having trouble casting your mind back to uh, childhood Sunday school days. And it came to pass on the 12th, 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up off from off the tabernacle of testimony. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai, and the clouds rested in the wilderness of Karen. And the tabernacle was taken down, and the servant of Bershah and the servant of Mariah set forward, bearing the tabernacle. What ideas do the wilderness and wandering or mobility conjecture, uh, conjure up? I would suggest our, I would suggest probation and our lives today. And there are a few scriptures that support that interpretation. The people were redeemed from Egypt by water at the hand of a deliverer and were placed in the wilderness. What occurred for this redeemed people? Well, Psalm 95 
clearly the dedicator of the temple was Solomon. We have already mentioned the location in Jerusalem, the future capital of Christ's kingdom, but we can add another contrast that reinforces this idea of Solomon's temple is difficult to kingdom age. In the wilderness, the sources, the material, and the leader of the construction were Hebrews. Specifically in Exodus 35, God calls out by name Isaiah of Judah and Holiah of Dan. This is that they are going to be, for lack of a better term, the chief architects, chief construction engineers. We will contrast that account with 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 5 tells us the following. Verse 18. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders to hew them, and the stone square, so they prepared timber and stones to build the house. Hiram here, who was the king of Tyre. Here we have Jew and Gentile working together in the construction of the temple. Furthermore, we can carry this idea of Tyre itself forward to the role of the future. Psalm 45 says that Tyre seeks favor with the kingdom of God. Psalm 45 says the following, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, separate thy kingdom is a right son. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oils of gladness above thy, fellow, above thy fellows. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. The prophet Isaiah links Tyre to the ships of Tarshish which then immediately brings us to Ezekiel 38, and those nations who do not join the building better see. We're not going to explore that topic this morning, but really included among the symbols that present Solomon's temple as a type of the future temple in the kingdom age. In the future, we pray that we will worship permanently in the kingdom among a nation of like-minded believers. Now, was the temple under Solomon the kingdom? No. This was God's kingdom on earth, but it is not. It was not the inheritance promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Bible is clear that that is yet to come. Genesis 15:18 states, the "Same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, As I see, I have given this land, the river of Egypt, the great river, the river of Euphrates. No Jewish kingdom ever controlled that territory, even to the largest extent during the reigns of David." And Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, was nowhere near that size. We also know that Solomon was a type only. The kingdom will be ruled by one whom David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy enemies thy footstool. Paul tells us, To Abraham and his seed to the promises made, he saith not to seeds as many, but as one, to thy seed, Christ. Lastly, even Solomon's temple, Abraham had not and still not inherited his promise. Stephen, at his death, testified of Abraham in Acts, and he gave him none inheritance of it. No, not so much to set his foot on, yet he promised he would give it to him for a possession to a seed after him, when he had yet no child. Likewise, the book, the book of Hebrews states, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. And continuing, possibly one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture, in chapter uh, Verse 40. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. <coughs> now, while I think we can see Solomon's temple as a symbol of the kingdom age and worship in the kingdom age, 
it was not the kingdom. In addition to the above proofs, we have one feature within Solomon's temple that also teaches this lesson. Please turn to Second Chronicles chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 5 to 9. <coughs> and they brought up the ark and the tabernacle of the congregation, all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle. These did the priests and the Levites bring up, also King Solomon, and the congregation of Israel that were assembled before him, before the ark, sanctified sheep and oxen, sacrificed sheep and oxen, which could not be told or numbered for multitude. And the priest brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord into his place, unto the oracle of the house, into the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their wings, and the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark, and the staff thereof, and the ark of the ark, that the ends of the stars were seen from before the oracle, but they were not seen without, and they are, and it is there to this day. Verse 9 is the key verse here for us. But unfortunately, King James Version is a poor translation. The Dead Sea Scrolls, other uh, translations like the Jewish Study Bible and the American Standard Version read, And the stays were so long that the ends of the stays were seen from the ark before the sanctuary, but they could not be seen without, and they are there to this day. The stays and the, the staves or the poles that were used to bear about the ark and carry it were still there. They were left in place. So if we think about what they were, their purpose was, they were there to carry the ark. They were there to move the ark. Even inside this permanent building, the ark could be moved. It was always standing ready to be moved. And I would parallel this with the imagery of Hebrews 4 as being a very similar idea. There, the book of Hebrews explains that while Joshua had brought the people into the land, they were settled. They had conquered it. They were not enjoying the Sabbath rest. The presence in the land was not to be equated with the promised human age. Likewise, I think the poles being left inside the ark tell the same story. Yes, the ark was no longer in the wilderness. Yes, it rested in a permanent building, one that was created by a son of David. But the poles were still there. This was not a permanent rest or a final rest. If need be, the ark could move. Now, that logically leads us to talk about the ark itself. If you've moved elsewhere in your Bible, turn back to 2 Chronicles, please, chapter 5, verse 10. 1 Kings 8 has the exact same parallel account. And in both, they both have the same kind of interesting little footnote. It reads, There was nothing in the ark save the two tables which Moses had put therein at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. What was missing from inside the ark? So we obviously have something missing. Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaying round about, wherein the golden pot that had the manna and Aaron's rod that budded, and the table of the covenant. In Solomon's temple, we are missing 
Hot of Hannah and Aaron's rod of butter. Now, before we talk about that significance, we probably should uh, take a second to digress and ask, uh, where did those two items go? Uh, we are not specifically told, but I can only think of uh, possibly one logical answer. First Samuel, chapter 4.
perfected saints in the kingdom. One who is immortal, one who has had tried faith, was chosen, who has been resurrected and wholly dedicated to the commandments of God. That is our objective. Solomon's temple, however, is missing resurrection and immortality. What would be the lesson for the average Israelite in pointing out the absence of these two goals or hopes from the temple that was in front of them? And I would suggest it's this. Temple worship for the average Israelites would teach them about God's laws. But divine choice, resurrection, and immortality were not reachable that way. There had to be another mechanism, and that mechanism was the everlasting covenant. Was teaching there needed to be some other way to get to those two things. And as long as we're discussing the ark, let's uh, see what the situation was during Zerubbabel's time. Josephus records the following little bit of history. Uh, essentially, when the Roman Empire stepped in and took over uh, control of Judah in about BC 63, BC 64. He records this, um, and no small enormities were committed about the temple itself, which in former ages had been inaccessible and seen by none. Uh, his term small enormities is a nice way of talking about a lot of people getting killed. Um, seen by none. For Pompeii went into it, and not a few of those who were Muslim also, and saw all that which was unlawful for any other men to see, but only for the high priests. There were in that temple the golden table, the holy candlestick, and the pouring vessels, and a great quantity of spices. And besides these were among the treasures 2,000 talents of sacred money, yet did Pompey touch nothing of all this on account of his regard religion. And in this point he also acted in a manner that was worthy of his virtue. We have to remember that Josephus is partial to Roman, so he speaks very nicely to Pompey. But what he accounts here, what is more important than his uh, nice little tribute to Pompey, is what Pompey didn't see. The Ark of the Covenant's not there. By BC 64, there is no Ark of the Temple. After the fall of the Jerusalem to the Babylonians, we do not hear about the Ark in scriptures. That's actually the last chapter. Ezra records that Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the Lord to the house of the house of the Lord, which never never had brought forth out of Jerusalem, and put them in the house of his gods. Apparently, the Ark was not among those things. Either returned, just, uh, returned by Cyrus or even taken by Nebuchadnezzar. As what happened to the ark, we only have traditions. This again is a complete aside, but one I find interesting. Uh, the book of 2 Maccabees records the following tradition. Uh, it's apocryphal, apocryphal but uh, it's a long standing tradition, one very common to you. Speaking of Jeremiah, he says this it was contained in the same writing that the prophet, being warned of God, commanded the tabernacle and the ark to go with him, and he went forth in the mountain where Moses climbed up and saw the heritage of God. And when Jeremy came thither, he found a hollow cave, and he laid the tabernacle and the ark, and the altar incense, so he stopped the door. And some of them that followed him came marked away, but could not find it, which Jeremy perceived. He blamed them, saying, As for this place, it shall be unknown until that time that God gathered the people in and received them with mercy. Other traditions say it was King Josiah, foresaw what was going to happen, and he's the one who did the ark. Uh, either way, by B.C. 63, the ark is not in the temple. And we have no indication that the ark was even there since the destruction of Jerusalem at the hand of the Babylonians. Now, if we consider this absence for some of the other events related to the temple, we can have at least 
an idea, I think, what this means. Take the dedication of Solomon's temple as the high point, and we'll see what befell the temple after that. It is not too long after that event we have uh, this following record in 1 Kings, chapter 14. Rejected by those who he was sent to save. 
If we think of it as a metaphor for the state of natural Israel, we can well understand Jesus' condemnation when he said it. He answered and said to them, Well, have Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as is written, His people honor him with their lips, but their heart is far from me. With the time we have left, we're going to look at two additional features introduced in Solomon's temple, uh, the most conspicuous of which is mentioned back in 1 Kings chapter 7.
within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive trees, each ten cubits high. Let's get down to 27. And he set the cherubims within the inner house, and when he set the cherubims within the inner house, and when he stretched forth the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one was on the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub on the other wall, and the wings of one another in the midst of the house. These images are not very good, so I apologize for them. But they help um, help the picture in your mind of what the Bible is trying to describe. Solomon's temple in the most holy place is dominated by two statues 18 feet high. The ark sat underneath the wings of these cherubims. And that's what the lower picture is trying to illustrate, but as you can tell, the imagery of the cherubims is wrong. What is also noteworthy, or more noteworthy, is that the orientation of these cherubims was different than the orientation of the cherubims on the ark. That's what the upper pictures are trying to describe. On the ark, the cherubims overlooked the mercy seat. They faced each other. In an essay in the book, uh, Cherubim, the Divine Majesty in Motion, H.P. Manfield states that the great cherubims, cherubim statues, in Solomon's temple faced outwards to the world. And most other sources I've found have, seem to have a similar conclusion. And the pictures on the top are meant to illustrate that. That the ones on the mercy seat face forward, where those two stand, statues face outwards to the world. Hopefully you can see that contrast. So the focus of these cherubims is not on the mercy seat, but on the world. We can also add that they were a different nature or construction than the cherubims of the ark. Those cherubims on the ark were of pure gold. The statues were made from olive, the wood of olive trees covered in gold. Again, we have the idea of the corruptible being made incorruptible. And I'm taking part of this from the Mansfield article I just mentioned, so it's not my own. But olive trees in the land of Israel were also sources for the oil used in the temple. Oil is symbolic of the spirit. As in the case of the lampstand, the light of the knowledge of God is generated by those with the spirit or mindset of God. So with these statues of the cherubim, we have images of the once corruptible, now incorruptible, who have been born of the spirit in the age to come. We roll these features with the outward orientation of the cherubim to see a symbol of a future time when the influence of those who have been made incorruptible will be directed across the entire earth in accordance with God's will. Here again we have Solomon's Temple, another type of Solomon's Temple of the future kingdom. So this morning, we have examined some of the differences in the house of the Lord. How does examining this question help our understanding of God's word? The tabernacle and later the temple was the single most important feature of life during the Mosaic Dispensation. Hopefully looking at it not as a static structure, but some of the individual differences and changes has introduced some aspects of God's word that you had not yet considered in detail, or hopefully help explain why the temple changed over time. How does examining this question of the differences in the house of the Lord help our faith? This morning we looked at an institution that endured for centuries, but one that changed significantly over time. Hopefully, to support our faith, we have seen a guiding hand in these changes. Changes in the temple were not arbitrary or capricious, but done with a purpose, and only our Heavenly Father could construct an institution that met the needs of the people 
and present on a daily basis and at the same time so instructed about the future in a very clear manner. And lastly, how does examining this question of differences in the house of the Lord help our walk? To answer that, I'm going to return to the image of the great cherubim in Solomon's temple. There was said the outward face of the cherubim point to the day when God's influence will go across the entire earth. God's will and plan is that he should be known. We also must project God's will outward through love and faith 